Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. So I have in your bulletin that we're going to talk about life's disappointments. And oh man, we're going to sit here and we're going to cry and go on forever about that. But um, we've all had them, I'm sure. I, I don't need a show of hands. I'm convinced that any one of us could really paint a sad tale if we wanted to. For instance, you may have thought that you earned your way or you deserved that raise, but you didn't get it. Or maybe it was the promotion that you were just sure it was yours and you got overlooked. Or it might have been an award that you you felt like the time put in, uh, the service, everything else, or the recognition just didn't happen. All those things you thought you were going to get only to see someone else get it. And it could have been someone who's done less than you have, and yet they still get all that recognition. So as I said, you and I can probably stand here and just go on and on and paint a lot of really sad tales. But we're talking about King David right now. We're going to start taking a look at some of the um, the time zones in, in Israel. It's uh, We're going to we're going to start at the very end of the life of King David, and we're going to move our way through some of the other people. So we're going to spend some time this summer in Chronicles, sometimes in Samuel, sometimes in Kings. And uh, there's a lot that we can learn from that. King David in First Chronicles chapter 29, which is the last chapter of First Chronicles, um, he has now come toward the end of his career, the end of his life, And he's done all that he could do to help build a temple. That's what his main passion in life has been for a while here. He desired it, and he had some very, very good motives. He actually laid out all the plans, and you can go back in chapter 28, and you can read some of the plans of what he had done and and how he prepared for it and how he got all the the donated goods that were needed, um, he himself contributed very heavily to it. David could easily, on that those last few days of his life, could have easily sat there and told a very, very sad tale. I think you heard Mark read from 1 Chronicles 17 and, and that first verse uh, where David said that he was wanting to put God in a permanent place of worship. But the prophet Nathan instructed him that that's not going to happen. Let's go back and do a little bit of history here. After King Solomon, okay, David is king. He's going to turn it over to Solomon. And then after that, the nation of Israel splits into two different kingdoms. They're divided. There's the northern kingdom, which is ten tribes. The initial guy was named Jeroboam. who ruled, and that was a group called Israel. And then the southern kingdom had two tribes, and Rehoboam uh, was the leader of that. They called them Judah. And between them, for the next tons of years, they're going to have each about 10 or 12 kings lead them, most of whom were a waste of time, really bad. 
In fact, one source I read said out of about 20, 25 kings, there were only four that we would consider good. And we'll see some of them later this, this summer. A little bit later, the northern kingdom called Assyria, well, Assyria came and took over the northern kingdom in the year 722 BC. A lot later than that, actually about 140 years later in 586, the southern kingdom was uh, invaded and taken over by Babylon. And so we're going to work toward that later on. You don't have to memorize that. We'll talk about it more. But here's what we want to learn, not just today, but through this summer, some of the things that we're going to be looking at. So um, first lesson that we're probably going to see is that the consequences brought by sin. That's what we're going to look at, some of the consequences. By the way, sin always has consequences. Sometimes we think we get away with something. Um, maybe we think nobody else knows. But there's always going to be a consequence to it. Always. Uh, we like the phrase in Scripture that says, be sure your sins will find you out. They do. Um, it always comes back on us. And that's going to be true for many of these people. In fact, for David, that's exactly what's going on for him right now. The reason he cannot build the temple is because of his past sin and the consequences that came from that. So we're going to see that time and time again. We're also going to see the amazing courage and the struggles that the prophets had to go through. You thought being a pastor was tough. Uh, no. But some of the things the prophets had to go through, they had opposition, they had anger at them, they had rejection, and I'm talking about the kings of the nation that were against them. And sometimes the things that they boldly had to speak on God's behalf meant that the king could just instantly have them put to death if he desired to do that. It was tough being a prophet during that time, and no rewards, no rewards for them, at least not earthly rewards. So we're going to see the consequences of sin throughout the summer. We're going to see that there's some amazing courage in the midst of some pretty harsh struggles. But here's the good news. We're also going to see the faithfulness of God. And that is amazing, what God will tolerate with his people. By the way, that's true in his relationship with you and me. The things he will tolerate from us, it's just amazing how he will still bless us, he will still be with us, he will still move in our lives, he will still allow us to experience some really wonderful things, even though the truth is not a one of us deserve any of that. So I mentioned, um, Mark did read this earlier to you. King David had everything that he could want. And what at this point in his life he wanted was to use all of that to build a temple and enjoy that. In chapter 17, verse 1, David made that statement that um, he was settled in his palace and he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am. I am living in a palace made of cedar. Cedar is pretty good wood. I've got a whole attic above our garage filled with some cedar from our land. And um, got to have an idea what to do with it. But the Ark of the Covenant, which was the housing presence of the Lord God, was living in a tent. 
Now, I know a lot of you like to do camping, and that's a good thing. Uh, and there's nothing, it's not derogatory toward tents, it's just making a comparison. The king lives in this beautiful palace, and God has been given the leftovers, just whatever. That happened sort of accidentally, because David, through a process, had the Ark of the Covenant brought to Jerusalem, and, uh, and there was a lot of struggle through that. But when he got it there, there was really no place adequate enough for it to be housed and, and for God to be worshipped. So here in chapter 29, David is standing for his leaders for one last time, and he's giving them his final instructions. So he starts to talk about the blessings that Israel had. Verse 1 says, Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And the task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but it's for the Lord God. Wow. God had chosen Solomon. You know, I've read 1 Kings 1. I've read 2 Samuel 15 through 18. You can do that too. And you're going to find out that there was a struggle over who was going to be the one to succeed King David on the throne. Absalom wanted it. He'd already committed murders of his stepbrothers. And so it wouldn't have been unusual for him to come in and murder his dad and everybody else who was a threat. That was his plan. And when he was getting ready to come in and David heard about it, David got a hold of his uh, inner court and said, guys, we got to get out of Dodge. We can't stay here. Uh, Absalom is on a tear and he's on a rampage and we got to go hide. And then there's his oldest son, living son, Adonijah, who um, he was he was ready for this too. And he wanted this position. And if he got to position, just like his stepbrother Absalom, he would have murdered everybody who was a threat to his rule. But God had chosen Solomon. That's amazing. And didn't it say in there that he's young and inexperienced? Wow. David wanted to be the one to build the temple. That was going to be the centerpiece of his kingdom. But God said, no, he didn't allow it. And the reason he wouldn't allow David to do that was because David was a man of blood and a man of warfare, as was Absalom and Adonijah. So the selection of the successor came at a tremendous personal cost to David. Read those chapters. It's horrid what you see there. Solomon was a man of peace. He was a novice but he was a man of peace. When he came to leadership, he was a novice. When it came especially to warfare, he was a novice. He had never been in a battle before. And that was unusual because in their day, the king was also the general. He was the guy who led everybody into battle. That's why they liked big, tall, strong, handsome guys that everybody would follow because that's what they did. But here it says in verse 1 that Solomon was young and inexperienced. Our good friend Jay Vernon McGee, who I have never met, but he used to be on the radio and I enjoyed listening to him. And I have a few of his commentaries. That phrase, young and inexperienced, I don't think he liked Solomon. 
J. Vernon translated that he was a sissy and inexperienced. I think that's a little bit harsh. But in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, you know what Solomon said about himself? He said that he was inexperienced and that he was a little child. Not quite a sissy, but immature. And he was 20 years old when he said that. Hmm. King David had every right to be the guy to lead this in his own mind. It would have been real easy to believe that. Look at verses 2 through 5. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Now, those are resources as the king. So everything that was expendable in the budget, the defense budget, everything else, he gave. And then he said, the task is great because this police... Oh, that's I'm backed up. I'm sorry. Um, then he said, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx and for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, all kinds, fine stone and marble, and all these large quantities. Beside, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures. Okay. Gold, silver for the temple, my God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Afir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying the walls of the buildings and for the work, of the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? <laughs> he said, when I, I looked at the treasury of Israel, and I thought, what can we give? And he's thinking liberally to this building of a temple. And he got all that done. Got it accomplished, set it aside, put it there. And then he looked at his own treasury and said, I'm going to give this personally. This is my own possessions I'm going to give. Now, there's other places where it lists the quantities and all that kind of stuff. This is not... Um, this is not inspired, but I looked at some of that. I estimated the value today and the quantity today, and I'm pretty confident that what he gave was the equivalent personally of more than a, in today's economy of about uh, about $100 million or a little bit more. Not a bad gift. Um, most of us would be glad to be able to give away $100 million if we could have that. <laughs> He gathered all the materials. He drew up all the blueprints. And then, as bitter as he was, because he didn't get to do what he wanted to, he wasn't bitter. <laughs> he encouraged Solomon to see the project through. Hmm. And then he encouraged the leaders to follow Solomon. Now, the leaders also donated, and when you get to verse 6, you see that the leaders of the families and the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, officials in charge of the king's work, gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents, 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and hundreds and thousands of talents of iron, and any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel, the uh, Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of the leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Hmm. 
The leaders were generous, and the people responded. They were generous. And all of this overwhelmed David so much that all he could do is just praise God. That's what he did. This temple, with these resources, and with the heart that David had for it, and the instructions that he gave to Solomon, this temple was going to be plush. (laughs) The temple of King Solomon built was going to be plush. It was going to be one that in human terms was worthy of our God. And when you think back about Israel, how they started, you know, a small shepherd family following God's direction, being obedient to him. Now, this is a kingdom of international importance. It's amazing. So David goes into this prayer of praise, and he wanted to pray for the success of Solomon. And he also wants to review the central themes of his life. It's amazing. He's not jealous. Uh, He's apparently learned some really good lessons. So in verse 11, it says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor of everything. From everlasting to everlasting. The earth, everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted and head of it. Hmm. Greatness, power, glory, majesty, splendor. Those are the words that David's using at that moment about his God. Sounds a little bit like Matthew and Luke when they recorded Jesus teaching the disciples' prayer about the kingdom. The kingdom is God's rule over earth. Here, he tells us that everything is yours. There's a principle, you know this, it's called stewardship. The stewards, we are stewards of of all kinds of things. And my definition of a steward is not a definition. My description of a steward is someone who manages someone else's wealth or property or their affairs. And somebody who just manages what's going on for that other person. But it's a pretty serious and important thing. Um, A guy named Payne, I'm hoping this comes up. I'm not sure. Is this it? Yeah, this is it. Says this. The truth that everything we have comes from God is the foundation for the doctrine of stewardship. As I was looking at verse 11, and it says, everything in heaven and in earth is yours. So I tried to think, I was going to give you all a test. This would really be tough, but I'm not going to ask you to do it because it's so hard. I was going to ask, what would be the opposite of everything? And I think the answer to that could be nothing. So if everything in heaven and on earth is God's, what does that include? Everything? And if everything in heaven and earth is God's, what does that exclude? Nothing? Right? I mean, i got to be close to right on that if, if words mean anything. It's all God's. It is all God's. And then when we get to... Um, Verses 12 
14, 16. I'll read 12 through 16. It says this, Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. And your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Our Lord, O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. Everything. There's no challenge to the ownership of God. None. There's nobody who can say, wait a minute, that's not yours, God, that's mine. No. And everything that there is, everything that you have and everything that I have has been given to us by God. Whether it's wealth, whether it's honor, whether it's talents, no matter what it is, we have nothing, we deserve nothing, we are nothing. David just asked in verse 14, who am I and who are we that you would bless us like this? We can't give anything to God because he owns it all. It's all his. There's nothing that we can do. He makes us rich. Isn't that amazing? He makes us rich with the possessions that are his. It's his universe. Here's another one from our friend J. Vernon McGee. God can only bless us when we open our hearts to him. I'm not sure if I understand the full context of what he was getting at on this, but I think it means that we need to understand a concept of stewardship, that everything is God's and everything belongs to him, and I just have it on loan. I think my second point was God owns, God loans. He loans it all to us. Our job is to manage it and to manage it well and manage it faithfully. Maybe the part of opening our hearts to him is to acknowledge that and to acknowledge God is the owner of all things. They're his, they're not ours. And we are here just simply as his stewards to do his will. That was a tough lesson to learn. And for me, it was really hard when I was younger. I'm not going to go into that, but it's an important lesson to learn. David's prayer is that the people and this new king, Solomon, will not lose sight of the centrality of having a pure heart before their great God. Follow his commands is what he wants us to do. The secret of David's leadership was not his power. It wasn't his wealth, although he had both. And he was one of the significant world rulers at that time. But the secret to his leadership was his trust in God, who all power and all wealth belonged to. In pleasing God, um, there were a couple things that we can learn. Praise pleases God. There's power in praise. And it really pleases God when we praise him. But praise also blesses us. It's good to give praise to God. It causes us to grow and, and to be blessed by God. And it can impact those who are around us. As we live thankful, grateful lives to God, 
we can really help a lot of other people. When we move down to verse 20 to 25, we're going to see the coronation of King Solomon. It says, Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low, they fell prostrate before the Lord and the king. The next day they made sacrifices to the Lord, and they presented burnt offerings to him. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand male lambs, together with their drink offerings and other sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. They ate and they drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. Then they acknowledged Solomon, son of David, as king a second time. By the way, that's because he was already installed as king in front of the elders a little bit earlier. But this is in front of all the people now. So they're kind of doing the big official public. This one was on CNN. The other one wasn't. So um, verse 22. So Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father David. He prospered. And all of Israel obeyed him. And all the officers and mighty men, as well as all of King David's sons, pledged their submission to King Solomon. And the Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal splendor, such as no king over Israel ever had before. Of course, he's the third king. But there haven't been very many since that have had a similar kind of thing. The kingdom became united for a while behind Solomon. And he had the opportunity to exercise royal authority. Even before King David died, it, this was sort of Israel's pinnacle time. All the promises that God had for them. This is like one of the best moments in all their history. And so the book of Chronicles closes, First Chronicles closes with the death of King David. Verse 26 to the end says this, David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. He ruled over Israel 40 years, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. His son Solomon succeeded him as king. As for the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, they're written in the records of Samuel the seer the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer, together with the details of his reign and power, the circumstances that surrounded him and Israel and the kingdom of all the other lands. So David's going to die, and his accomplishments are well chronicled. Uh, just That's what this writer... By the way, m many scholars believe that Ezra was the one who wrote the book of First Chronicles, and maybe Second Chronicles as well. And they think that he used some of the other resources like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings to kind of tell the story and then weave in some other things. And, and there were probably some other writings that he might have referenced that we don't have anymore. We don't know anything about them. But on that day, when David died, they lost a great leader, an amazing leader leader, probably in their history, one of the greatest that they had as far as a king. That would have been a, a disappointing time for people. They, they were excited about Solomon, but he was young, inexperienced, and a sissy when it came to warfare. 
And so it was unsure what was going to happen in the future. But God is still sovereign. He still loves us. And He never fails. His plan is on target all the time. You and I can bu- cannot build temples. We don't do that. <laughs> That's not what you've been called to do, or I've been. At least I don't think we have. But we can offer Him the temple of our own lives. Here's what Paul wrote in Corinthians to believers, to those who are followers of Jesus. Do you not know... By the way, it's a rhetorical question, which means the answer is really obvious. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Who is in you, whom you have received from God? Of course, that's true. We know that. The Holy Spirit dwells within us as followers of Christ. And you're not your own. No. You were bought at a price. A price that was unbelievably high. It was the life of Jesus Christ. So therefore, honor God with your body. And I would say that includes the whole being. We are to praise and honor God every day of our lives. We are to follow him with pure hearts. We are to follow his commands and do what he asks of us. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at the lives of leaders and people in a country so long ago, one that you had intimate relationships with, one that you guided and and had expectations for, Uh, it's way more to us than just a dusty historical document. It's words of life that can help us. Help us to understand the consequences of our sins. Help us to have courage in the struggles that we go through. And even more important, help us to see your faithfulness in our lives so that we can continue to live for you. Lord, we are so grateful for the the words that you give to us from your holy word that are great encouragement, great helps, great guidelines for us to live by, and especially the truths of our life of Jesus, our Savior and the gift that he gave to us. God, we acknowledge that all things are yours, and every good and perfect gift comes from you above, and that we are simply your stewards, uh, your, your people working on your behalf. But as stewards, we have great responsibilities, and we pray that you would help us to understand those, and that we would be faithful with those responsibilities as well. And that in return, we can bring glory to your name. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy that comes to us through Christ our Savior. We honor and praise you through him. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.